Welcome to Hub History, the show where we share our favorite stories from Boston history. This is episode 112, Theodore Parker and the 1854 Abolitionist Riot. Hi, I'm Nikki. And I'm Jake. This week, we're going to discuss the radical Unitarian minister Theodore Parker. Parker's theology threw the church into a philosophical crisis over his belief that the Bible was not literally true. He used his platform to stoke the flames of abolition in Boston, eventually facing charges for inciting a riot when black and white Bostonians came together in an attempt to free the fugitive from slavery Anthony Burns ahead of his deportation to Virginia. But before we talk about Parker's journey from humble farm boy to abolitionist leader, it's time for this week's Boston Book Club selection and our upcoming historical event. Our pick for the Boston Book Club this week is Boston's Banner Years, 1965 to 2015, a saga of black success, edited by Melvin B. Miller with the contributions of seven writers. The Bay State Banner describes the book as follows. Author Melvin B. Miller believes it can be hard for the black community in Boston to maintain an inspired outlook, largely due to the lack of media attention to black achievements. This limited coverage has created the impression of continual failure. In Miller's new book, he refutes the negative implications of alleged black incompetence by chronicling black success in a series of journalistic accounts that highlight black achievement in Boston over the course of 50 years. Miller has compiled an array of stories that showcase Boston's diverse black community, offering a historical review of the multitude of black success stories in numerous fields. In addition to the 50-year period of coverage, Miller also provides an overview of the efforts Black people have made to improve their status from colonial times that helped to establish the cultural milieu in which Boston's Black community developed. Melvin B. Miller grew up in Boston and graduated from Boston Latin School, Harvard College, and Columbia Law School. In 1965, he founded the Bay State Banner, where he has served as publisher and editor for more than 50 years. One chapter of the book, written by Sandra Larson, highlights activism in the Black community. She writes, In early June 1967, a peaceful sit-in by a group of Boston women pushing for changes to the city-run welfare system drew a heavy-handed police response that sparked three nights of violent protest along Blue Hill Avenue, where Roxbury and Dorchester meet. The Women of Mothers for Adequate Welfare had been building a network of support and pushing for welfare system improvements for some time before the Grove Hall Welfare Office sit-in that led to unanticipated violence. The banner covered the activities of MAW extensively, starting around the time the group was formed in the fall of 1965. Chaired by Doris Bland, the group of mostly African-American women began with a simple plan to lend mutual support to one another discuss how to improve their lot and treatment as single mothers, and grow the group to a point where it could bring pressure on city officials to provide them more respectful treatment and adequate services. We tried to get public housing. They don't want us. We try to get good private housing. We can't afford the rents. We can't get good jobs. We don't have the proper education, Bland said in October of 1965. This is why we have formed MAW. We have decided that if nobody cares about us, at least we must care for ourselves and our children. 
In June of 1967, MAW members gathered in the Boston Welfare Department's Grove Hall office with a list of 10 demands and the determination to stage a sit-in until they were heard. To learn about their advocacy, the police response, and the impact of their action, you'll need to pick up a copy of the book or stay tuned for a future episode. And for our upcoming event this week, we're featuring the new Repertory Theater's production of 1776. This 1969 Tony Award-winning musical follows John Adams through the events surrounding the signing of the Declaration of Independence and dramatizes his efforts to persuade his colleagues to vote for American independence and to sign the document. Following the lead of Hamilton, the actors reflect a much more diverse cast of characters than one would have found in the room where it happened. The Globe writes, Their non-traditional casting for 1776, performers of color in roles that are usually played by white actors, women portraying men, and vice versa, suggests that they're hoping to capture some of the dynamism that Hamilton engendered by telling a story of the past with the diverse voices and faces of the present. Set largely in the chamber where the Second Continental Congress has convened in Philadelphia during the sweltering summer of 1776, the musical revolves around the efforts by the fiery John Adams, played at full throttle by the ever-reliable Benjamin Evett, to persuade delegates from the 13 colonies to support a bid for independence from England. A large Union Jack looming upstage on Christina Tedesco's set underscores the size of the challenge they will face in breaking free. Adams has one notable Pennsylvania delegate on his side, the gout-ridden, aphoristic Benjamin Franklin, played by Bobby Steinbach. But another Pennsylvania delegate, John Dickinson, played by Amy Doherty, is implacably opposed to any attempt to separate from England. What is this independence of yours but the private grievance of Massachusetts, Dickinson demands? Why in God's name is it always Boston that breaks the king's peace? We'll be honest, the reviews have been mixed. But with a Boston special making tickets available for less than $30, this is a must-do for Boston history nerds. The show runs through December 29th at the New Repertory Theater in Watertown. We'll include a Boston link in the week's show notes. And now it's time for this week's main topic. Theodore Parker was born in Lexington in 1810, the youngest child in a large farming family. His grandfather was John Parker the leader of the Lexington Militia at the Battle of Lexington, and the namesake of Parker's Revenge. His ancestors arrived in the Massachusetts Bay Colony in 1634, giving him an impressive Yankee lineage. As a teenager, Parker excelled at academics and gained an education through country schools and personal study. He studied long and late, and when farm chores allowed, tutoring himself in math, Latin, and other subjects. At 17, he began teaching in local schools. He continued tutoring himself and private students in advanced and specialized subjects, even learning Hebrew. In 1830, at age 19, Parker walked the 10 miles from Lexington to Cambridge to apply to Harvard College. He was accepted, but could not pay the tuition. So he lived and studied at home, continued to work on his father's farm, and joined his classmates only for exams. Under that program, he was able to complete three years of study in one. He then took various posts as a teacher, conducting an academy from 1831 to 34 in Watertown, where his mother's family lived. In Watertown, he met his future wife, Lydia Dodge Cabot. 
He announced their engagement to his father in October of 1833, and they were married four years later on April 20, 1837. During this time, Parker produced his first significant manuscript, The History of the Jews, which outlined his skepticism of biblical miracles and an otherwise liberal approach to the Bible. These were to be themes throughout his career. Parker considered a career in law, but his strong faith led him to theology, and he entered the Harvard Divinity School in 1834. He specialized in the study of German theology and was drawn to the ideas of Coleridge, Carlyle, and Emerson. He wrote and spoke Latin, Greek, Hebrew, and German. His journal and letters show that he was acquainted with many other languages, including Syriac, Arabic, Coptic, and Ethiopic. He completed the Divinity School program quickly, in 1836, in order to marry and begin preaching without delay. Despite his academic excellence and progressive leanings, Parker had some flaws that made him a poor husband. He married Lydia in 1837, and the union was rocky at first due to stresses and incompatibilities, and both were saddened to have no children. Failing to manage this emotional turmoil, in 1840 he sought consolation in the company of another woman, Anna Blake Shaw, who had a similar theology and temperament to his own. The friendship was by all accounts not sexual, but this attachment naturally increased problems at home, where he found it difficult to bond with his wife. Parker accepted a pastor at West Roxbury in 1837. At first, he found the location less than stimulating and the work constraining. With time, he adapted to pastoral life and preached in many pulpits around Boston as a visitor. He gained a wide reputation as an earnest, effective speaker. In 1840, Harvard awarded him with an honorary master's degree on the basis of his extensive learning. Parker delivered one especially popular sermon 25 times between 1838 and 1841. In it, he argued against the popular notion that religion could be reduced to morality. The principle of morality is obedience to the law of conscience, he wrote, while religion required more, that we feel naturally allegiance to a superior being, dependence on him, and accountability to him. The theme of dependence echoes Schleiermacher, an indication of the German influence on its theology. He asserted that morality involves right acting, while religion requires love of God and regular prayer, which Parker considered essential to human life. No feeling is more deeply planted in human nature than the tendency to adore a superior being, he preached, to reverence him, to bow before him, to feel his presence, to pray to him for aid in times of need and to bless him when the heart is full of joy. In 1837, Parker began attending meetings of the group later known as the Transcendental Club, and he welcomed the opportunity to associate with Emerson, Amos Bronson Alcott, Orestes Brownson, and several others. Transcendentalists such as Henry David Thoreau and Parker wrote of the world as divine and of themselves as part of this divinity. Unlike Emerson and other transcendentalists, Parker believed the movement was rooted in deeply religious ideas and did not believe it should retreat from religion. All shared a conviction that slavery should be abolished and social reforms should take root. Parker gradually introduced transcendentalist ideas into his sermons. He tempered his radicalism with diplomacy and discretion, however, describing his methodology in a letter to a friend. 
I preach abundant heresies, and they all go down, for the listeners do not know how heretical they are. Nay, I preach the worst of all things, transcendentalism, the grand heresy itself, none calling me to account therefore, but men's faces looking like fires now stirred thereat. For years, he had wrestled with the factuality of the Hebrew scriptures. He definitely did not believe that Jonah was swallowed by a big fish. Questions regarding biblical realism and meaning, and the answers clergy increasingly found through the German-based higher criticism, formed the basis of liberal Christianity as it emerged and developed throughout the 19th century. In 1841, Parker laid bare his radical theological position in a sermon titled A Discourse on the Transient and Permanent in Christianity, in which he espoused his belief that the traditions of historic Christianity did not reflect the truth. Ultimately, he rejected all miracles in Revelation and saw the Bible as full of contradictions and mistakes. He retained his faith in God, but suggested that people experience God intuitively and personally and that they should center their religious beliefs on individual experience. Parker's West Roxbury Church remained loyal, but nearly all the pulpits in the Boston area closed to him, and he lost friends. Parker reacted with grief and defiance, and he refused to concede that his views placed him beyond the outer bounds of Unitarian liberalism. In January 1845, a sizable group of supporters gathered at the Marlboro Chapel in Boston and resolved to provide Parker with a platform to be heard. Calling themselves Friends of Theodore Parker, they rented a hall and invited him to preach there on Sunday mornings. Parker accepted and preached his first sermon at the Melodian Theater in February. Although the arrangement was temporary at first, he resigned as West Roxbury pastorate in early 1846, to the dismay of his faithful parishioners there. He elected to call his new congregation the 28th Congregational Society of Boston. Parker's congregation grew to 2,000 then 3% of Boston's population, and included influential figures such as Louisa May Alcott, William Lloyd Garrison, Julia Ward Howe, and Elizabeth Cady Stanton. Stanton called his sermons soul-satisfying, and she credited him with introducing her to the idea of a heavenly mother in the Trinity. Parker was increasingly known for preaching what he and his followers identified as a type of prophetic Christian social activism. After 1846, Parker shifted from a focus on transcendentalism and challenging the bounds of Unitarian theology to a focus on the gathering national divisions over slavery. In Boston, he led the movement to combat the stricter Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. The act required law enforcement and citizens of all states, free states as well as slave states, to assist in arresting those who had escaped slavery and returning them into bondage. Parker called the law a hateful statute of kidnappers and helped organize open resistance to it. On October 4th of 1850, the Boston Vigilance Committee called a public meeting in Faneuil Hall to discuss how to respond. Frederick Douglass and Theodore Parker addressed the crowd, which was one of the largest ever convened in the hall. This meeting is often referred to as the first or founding meeting due to the committee's newly heightened visibility but the group was actually founded in 1841. The committee was racially integrated and had over 200 members. Many were wealthy elites whose main contribution was funding. 
Those who provided more hands-on assistance included, among others, Lewis Hayden, who helped rescue Shadrach Minkins from federal custody in 1851, John Sweatrock, the committee's medical officer, and Austin Bears, a ship captain who smuggled fugitives in and out of Boston. Several members were lawyers who defended those accused of being fugitive slaves as well as their allies in court. At least three were also members of the Secret Six who founded John Brown's raid on Harper's Ferry. Parker, fellow minister Thomas Wentworth Higginson, and physician Samuel Gridley Howe. The committee had no female members, but by contrast, the African-American-founded New England Freedom Association had two female officers. Many locals who were not members provided aid to escapees and were reimbursed by the committee. For example, the committee's expense ledger shows several payments to the Reverend Leonard Grimes of the 12th Baptist Church for passage fees, and one payment of $9 to George Latimer for six days of watching John Caphart, a notorious slave catcher. Although the committee was interracial, it never had more than eight black members. With a few exceptions, the white members tended to be more cautious than the black members, preferring to supply legal and financial aid, while black Bostonians did most of the actual relief work behind the scenes. Black Bostonians had more at stake and were more willing to use force to achieve their ends. Due to these efforts, from 1850 to the onset of the Civil War in 1861, only two escaped enslaved men were captured in Boston and transported back to the South. On both occasions, Bostonians combated the actions with mass protests. Parker's early biographer John White Chadwick wrote that Parker was involved with almost all of the reform movements of the time. Peace, temperance, education, the condition of women, penal legislation, prison discipline, the moral and mental destitution of the rich, the physical destitution of the poor though none became a dominant factor in his experience with the exception of his anti-slavery views. His abolitionism became his most controversial stance. On May 24, 1854, an escaped, formerly enslaved man named Anthony Burns was discovered in Boston and arrested. In Anthony Burns, A History, Charles Emery Stevens describes the Vigilance Committee's dilemma. By this committee of vigilance, the case of Burns was now taken in hand. Early in the afternoon of the day following his arrest, a full meeting for the purpose was secretly convened. On the main point, there was but one voice. All agreed that, be the commissioner's decision what it might, Burns should never be taken back to Virginia if it were in their power to prevent it. But there were two opinions as to the method by which they should proceed to effect their purpose. One party counseled an attack on the courthouse and a forcible rescue of the prisoner. The other party were in favor of a less violent course. They proposed to await the commissioner's decision. Then, if it were adverse to the prisoner, they would crowd the streets when he was brought forth, present an impassable living barrier to the progress of the escort, and see to it that, in the melee that would inevitably follow, Burns made good his escape. Both plans were long and vehemently debated, but without arriving at any decision, the meeting was adjourned till evening. At this second session, the more peaceful method prevailed by a very large majority. For the purpose of arousing the popular feeling to the requisite pitch, and also indicating to the public the particular line of action which had been chosen, 
It was at the same time decided to call a public meeting in Faneuil Hall for the following evening. Another step was to detail a certain number of men to watch the courthouse night and day, lest the prisoner should be removed unawares. Some, in the excess of their apprehensions, feared that the commissioner might hold a midnight session of his court and send Burns back into slavery under cover of darkness. Committee President George Russell set the tone of the meeting. I once thought that a fugitive could never be taken from Boston. I was mistaken. One has been taken from among us, and another lies in peril of his liberty. The boast of the slaveholder is that he will catch his slaves under the shadow of Bunker Hill. We have made compromises until we find that compromise is concession and concession is degradation. Wendell Phillips spoke, and then Parker gave an impassioned speech to the crowd. I say, there are two great laws in this country. One is the slave law. That is the law of the President of the United States. It is Senator Douglas's law. It is the law of the Supreme Court of the United States. It is the law of the Commissioner. It is the law of every marshal and of the meanest ruffian whom the marshal hires to execute its behests. There is another law which my friend Mr. Wendell Phillips has described in language such as I cannot equal, and therefore I shall not try. I only state it in its plainest terms. It is the law of the people, when they are sure they are right and determined to go ahead. Now, gentlemen, there was a Boston once, and you and I had fathers, brave fathers, and mothers who stirred up those fathers to manly deeds. Well, gentlemen, once it came to pass that the British Parliament enacted a law, they called it a law, issuing stamps here, what did your fathers do on that occasion? They said, in the language of Algernon Sidney, quoted in your resolutions, that which is not just is not law, and that which is not law ought not to be obeyed. And they did not obey the Stamp Act. Well, gentlemen, I say there is one law, slave law, it is everywhere. There is another law, which is also a finality, and that law, it is in your hands and your arms, and you can put that in execution just when you see fit. Gentlemen, I am a clergyman and a man of peace. I love peace. But there is a means, and there is an end. Liberty is the end. And sometimes peace is not the means towards it. Now I want to ask you what you are going to do. There are ways of managing this matter without shooting anybody. Be sure that these men who have kidnapped a man in Boston are cowards, every mother's son of them. And if we stand up there resolutely and declare that this man shall not go out of the city of Boston without shooting a gun, then he won't go back. Now, I'm going to propose that when you adjourn, it be to meet in Court Square tomorrow morning at 9 o'clock. As many as are in favor of that motion will raise their hands. A large number of hands were raised, but many voices cried out, Let's go tonight. Let's pay a visit to the slave catchers at the Revere House. Do you propose to go to the Revere House tonight? Then show your hands. Some hands were held up. It is not a vote. We shall meet in Court Square at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. Parker was able to rile the crowd up, but he then lacked the presence and authority to control them. Stevens details what happened next. Parker proposed that when the meeting adjourned, it should be to meet in Court Square the following morning at 9 o'clock. Tonight, shouted a hundred voices in reply. The speaker stood silent, as one in doubt. At length, he called on those who were in favor of proceeding that night to the square to raise their hands. 
half the assembly did so. But now the excitement burst through all bounds. The vast hall was filled with one wild roar of voices. To the courthouse, was shouted in one quarter. To the Revere House for the slave catchers, was answered back from another. In vain, Mr. Parker attempted to allay the tumult, but his voice was submerged in the billows of sound, and he stood gesticulating like one in a dumb show. A potent master of the weapons that are fitted to goad the public mind even to madness, he lacked the sovereign power to control and subdue at will large masses of men. Amid the uproar, Wendell Phillips again ascended the platform. The different quality of the two men then appeared. Ere half a dozen sentences had fallen from his lips, the assembly had subsided into profound stillness. Let us remember, said he, where we are and what we are going to do. You have said, tonight you will vindicate the fair fame of Boston. Let me tell you, you won't do it by groaning at the slave catchers at the Revere House, by attempting the impossible act of insulting a slave catcher. If there is a man here who has an arm and a heart ready to sacrifice anything for the freedom of an oppressed man, let him do it tomorrow. If I thought it would be done tonight, I would go first. I don't profess courage, but I do profess this. When there is a possibility of saving a slave from the hands of those who are called officers of the law, I am ready to trample any statute or any man under my feet to do it, and am ready to help any 100 men to do it, but wait until daytime. The vaults of the banks of State Street sympathize with us. The Whigs, who have been kicked once too often, sympathize with us. It is in your power so to block up every avenue that the man cannot be carried off. Do not, then, balk at the effort of tomorrow by foolish conduct tonight giving the enemy the alarm. You that are ready to do the real work, be not carried away by indiscretion, which may make shipwreck of our hopes. The zeal that won't keep till tomorrow will never free a slave. At the same time that the Vigilance Committee was meeting and its white leaders were arguing for delayed action, the New England Freedom Association was meeting at the Tremont Temple, and their meeting had a different conclusion. Stevens continues... By this time, the orator had his audience well in hand, when suddenly a man at the entrance of the hall shouted, Mr. Chairman, I am just informed that a mob of Negroes is in Court Square attempting to rescue Burns. I move that we adjourn to Court Square. A formal vote was not waited for, and the next instant the whole mass was pouring down the broad stairs and along the streets towards the new theater of action. An account of the trial of Anthony Burns published in 1854 details what happened as the two crowds of abolitionists gathered in Court Square. The crowd moved from Faneuil Hall to the courthouse, and halting on the east side, endeavored to force the door on that part of the building. But failing in their attempt, they ran round to the door on the west side opposite the railroad exchange, with loud cries that the fugitive was in that wing of the building, and there proceeded with a long plank, which they used as a battering ram, and two axes to break in and force an entrance, which they did and two of their number entered the building, but were quickly ejected by those inside. The battering ram was manned by a dozen or fourteen men, white and colored, who plunged it against the door until it was stove in. Meantime, several brickbats had been thrown at the windows, and the glass rattled in all directions. 
The leaders, or those who appeared to act as ringleaders in the melee, continually shouted, Rescue him! Bring him out! Where is he? The courthouse bell rung an alarm at half-past nine o'clock. At this point, reports of pistols were heard in the crowd, and firearms, we understand, were used by those within the building, but whether loaded with ball or not, we cannot say. During this struggle, some 30 shots were fired by rioters, and the most intense excitement prevailed. The whole square was thronged with people. The chief of police, Taylor, was upon the ground with a full force of the police to stay the proceedings of the mob, now pressing still more reckless and threatening. Mr. Taylor pressed through the excited multitude and, with great heroism, seized several men with axes in their hands while breaking down the courthouse door. At the time the mob beat down the westerly door of the courthouse, several men employed as United States officers were in the passageway, using their endeavors to prevent the ingress of the crowd. And among the number was Mr. James Batchelder, a truckman in the employ of Colonel Peter Dunbar, who, almost at the instant of the forcing of the door, received a pistol shot, evidently a very heavy charge, in the abdomen. Mr. Batchelder uttered the exclamation, I'm stabbed, and falling backwards into the arms of watchman Isaac Jones, expired almost immediately. The unfortunate man resided in Charlestown, where he leaves a wife and one or two children to mourn his untimely fate. At the time of forcing the door, and just as the fatal shot was fired, one of the rioters who was standing on the upper step exclaimed to the crowd, You cowards, will you desert us now? At this moment, the exclamation of Batchelder, I'm stabbed, was heard, and the rioters retreated to the opposite side of the street. During these outrages upon the courthouse, the chief of police summoned his men to protect the peace in the square, and with the assistance of only five men, rushed into the crowd before the door and succeeded in arresting and bearing off to the watch house nine people. The mayor was notified by his chief of police of the state of affairs, and he at once issued an order on Colonel Cowden for two companies of artillery. At 12 o'clock, the Boston Artillery under Captain Evans and the Columbian Artillery under Captain Cass came to the aid of the civil authorities. Their presence served to restore quiet, and Court Square was soon deserted by the rioters. Captain Evans' command was stationed in the city hall for the night, and Captain Cass's company took quarters at the courthouse. At half-past twelve o'clock, the square was deserted. Burns' trial the next day was a formality, as the requirements of the Fugitive Slave Act were clear and did not require much documentation on the part of slaveholders or their representatives. Richard Henry Dana Jr. and his associate, the prominent black lawyer Robert Morris, acted as Burns's defenders, but were not successful in the case. United States Commissioner and Suffolk County Probate Court Judge Edward G. Loring remanded Burns to his owner, Charles F. Suttle, of Alexandria, Virginia. Following the decision against Burns, the government effectively held Boston under martial law for the afternoon. The streets between the courthouse and the harbor were lined with federal troops to hold back the waves of protesters as Burns was escorted to the ship for his return to Virginia. The matter did not end after Burns was transported south. The events generated strong opposition across the north to President Pierce and his administration. Massachusetts residents formed an anti-manhunting league. William Lloyd Garrison burned copies of the Fugitive Slave Act, the Boston Court Decision, and the Constitution of the United States. And, 
As a result of the efforts of the Boston Vigilance Committee to lobby the legislature and governor against him, Edward G. Loring, the judge who tried Burns, was removed from office in 1857. In a broader sense, the Burns case fueled anti-slavery sentiments all across the North. The impact of the Burns trial was best articulated by Amos Adams Lawrence. We went to bed one night, old-fashioned, conservative, compromised union Whigs, and waked up stark mad abolitionists. Parker was charged with inciting a riot, and his case went to trial in April of 1855. In his 200-page defense, he attacked the immorality of slaveholders and all of those who helped protect the institution. He equated morality with active, even if illegal, opposition to slavery, and leaned heavily on the story of Ellen and William Craft, a fugitive couple that made Boston their home before the threat of slave catchers forced them to flee to England. Mass Moments Details The Craft story was compelling indeed. Both of them were born into slavery in Georgia. William's first owner was a gambler, who sold off his slaves one by one to pay his debts. When his master decided that a slave with a marketable skill would bring a higher price, he apprenticed William to a carpenter. Ellen was the daughter of a slave named Maria and Maria's master, Colonel James Smith. Bitterly resentful of the fact that the light-skinned Ellen was often mistaken for a family member, Mrs. Smith gave the 11-year-old girl to one of her daughters as a wedding present. Ellen and William met in Macon, Georgia, in the early 1840s, and fell in love. William described their condition as, not by any means the worst, still, they despaired at the thought of spending their lives in bondage. Knowing that as long as she was a slave, her children would be born into slavery, Ellen resolved never to marry and have children. But after puzzling our brains for a year, William recalled, we were reluctantly driven to the sad conclusion that it was almost impossible to escape. They decided to get the consent of their owners and were married in 1846. Almost three years passed before the couple devised an ingenious and audacious plan. Ellen was so light-skinned that she could pass for white. They agreed that she would disguise herself as a young white man traveling north, attended by his slave. William used his savings to purchase the clothing and accessories that Ellen needed. She would cut her hair, don clothes befitting a gentleman, and wear dark glasses. At the last minute, they realized that Ellen would have to sign the guest register at their lodgings. It was illegal for slaves to learn to read or write, so they decided to bind her arm in bandages and say that they were going north to seek medical treatment. With an injured arm, she could ask others to sign for her without arousing suspicion. On December 21, 1848, they slipped out of Georgia. For four harrowing days, they traveled by train, boat, and stagecoach. Their ruse was nearly uncovered several times when fellow travelers or station masters questioned why a man would risk taking a slave to Philadelphia where he could so easily run away. William served his master with such devotion that Ellen could respond convincingly that she had little fear of that. Luck was on their side, and they arrived in Philadelphia on Christmas Day. They remained there for several weeks before continuing on to Boston, where abolitionists hailed them as the heroes that they were. They spent the next few months on a speaking tour of Massachusetts 
and then began boarding in the Beacon Hill home of Black activist Lewis Hayden. Ellen worked as a seamstress and William as a cabinet maker. He became both a successful tradesman and a leader in Boston's Black community. In September of 1850, however, the newly passed Fugitive Slave Act put them in jeopardy. Northerners were now obliged to help slave owners reclaim their property, and within a month, two agents arrived in Boston looking for the crafts. William barricaded himself in his shop, while friends stood guard outside. The agents persisted, but William managed to get himself back to the Haydens. Lewis Hayden armed his house with kegs of gunpowder and vowed to blow it up rather than surrender a single person under his protection. Ellen Craft went into hiding at Theodore Parker's home. For the next two weeks, the minister wrote his sermons with a sword in the open drawer under his inkstand and a pistol in the flap of his desk. Anti-slavery activists harassed and threatened the agents and followed them everywhere. In the course of five days, they had them arrested five different times on charges such as slander and attempted kidnapping. Finally, the agents were intimidated into leaving the city. The abolitionists were jubilant, but they knew that the crafts were no longer safe, even in Boston. When the crafts' former masters wrote to President Millard Fillmore for help, he replied that he would mobilize troops if necessary to see the law enforced. The crafts decided that, like hundreds of other fugitive slaves, they would have to leave Boston. Since all of the ports were being watched and guarded, they traveled overland to Nova Scotia, where they eventually boarded a boat to England. Ultimately, Parker's strategy to put the Fugitive Slave Act on trial proved successful. The judge read the room well in terms of Boston's moral opposition and growing radicalization, and opted to dismiss the case rather than untangle the knot of law, ethics, and public opinion. Following a lifetime of overwork, Parker's ill health forced his retirement just four years later in 1859. He developed tuberculosis, then without effective treatment, and departed for Florence to seek comfort with his friends, where he died on May 10, 1860, just a month after his arrival. He's buried in the English cemetery in Florence, and when Frederick Douglass visited, his first stop was a visit to Parker's grave to pay his respects. To learn more about Theodore Parker, check out this week's show notes at hubhistory.com 112. We'll have links to several texts, including an 1854 publication containing the report of the Faneuil Hall meeting, the murder of Batchelder, Theodore Parker's lesson for the day, speeches of counsel on both sides corrected by themselves, a verbatim report of Judge Loring's decision, and a detailed account of the embarkation. We'll also link to Parker's 200-page written defense and a biography of Parker. And, of course, we'll have links to information about our upcoming event and Boston's Banner Years, this week's Boston Book Club pick. Before we go, we also want to say a big hello and welcome to our new listeners from Boston Free Radio. Hope you're enjoying the show. And for anybody else out there who likes Boston history but isn't in the habit of downloading podcasts, you can tune into Boston Free Radio to hear our show every Sunday at 8 p.m., streaming on bostonfreeradio.com. If you want to get in touch with us, you can email us at podcast at hubhistory.com. 
You can call and leave a voicemail at 617-383-9255, and we might play it on the show. We're Hub History on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Or you can go to hubhistory.com and click on the Contact Us link. While you're on this site, hit the subscribe link and be sure that you never miss an episode. If you subscribe on Apple Podcasts, please think about writing us a brief review. It's still the best way to help others discover the show. That's all for now. We'll be back next time with the story of how Boston invented time zones. 